Hello there, Osha here. I hope you're okay at the moment, whatever it is you're doing this Monday. It's Easter Monday, isn't it? In our part of the world, that would normally mean that we'd all be on a vacation somewhere, or a holiday as we like to call it, camping somewhere with sand in every possible orifice, wondering when we're going to get a warm shower again, and why do we have to wear thongs in the shower here? I'm planned towards that's why. Uh, but no, we're not doing that, because uh, COVID-19 has mean that everybody, everywhere, is at home which is a good damn thing, because goodness me, there are some places on this planet that haven't been locking down, and you can see what's been happening there, and so I am very grateful to be at home (laughs) with a fridge full of food and a safe family. However, those of us who still can work are trying to work, And uh, I'm going to speak for two people that uh, do work with me, Andy Marr, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer. I still need to pay them. So you might hear a commercial right now. You might hear an ad for some stuff, or you might not. But if you do, I'd like to thank you in advance for helping me pay Andy and Rach. All right. Here we go. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Any kind of intimacy is a dialogue, isn't it? It's like your body responding to their body and it, it has to be that like ongoing conversation and we have to start thinking about sex in like in any iteration as a conversation and as something that both people are contributing to that is author artist and screenwriter sophie hardcastle and this is episode 332 of better than yesterday Hello. 
Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is with Sophie Hardcastle, the author, artist, and screenwriter, Sophie Hardcastle. She's on Instagram, at Sophie underscore Hardcastle. She's just released her new novel, her second novel. It's called Below Deck. It is a devastatingly powerful book, ultimately, I guess, I guess about the, the blurriness of consent. And it is a tough read, but it is well and truly worth it. More about Sophie in just a moment. If you're new, welcome to the show. This is a conversation called Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast I've been doing twice a week since 2013. And like it says on the tin, hopefully, well, actually not hopefully, it will help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear in the next hour or so is something you'll need to hear today. And you'll go, oh, yeah. All right, then. And you get on with your day and going about things a slightly little bit differently. But you go to bed tonight going, yeah, today's a little bit better than it was. And that's what we do. That's what we've been doing here for 331 episodes. And it's great. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Osher Ginsberg. I'm a, a TV uh, and radio guy from Sydney, Australia. And um, I also, uh, what else do I do? I work out in the backyard with my neighbor. Uh, oh, today I washed a bicycle with a pressure washer, which was exciting. Very, uh, it was really, you know, kind of, I thought I was being all badass because there's water restrictions and it was like, and then it was done. Like, oh, okay, well, I probably, it was probably less than a bucket of water that I used. But yeah, I washed a bicycle with a pressure washer the day with a baby strapped to my back. It was super good. I was in Skywalker mode. What else do I do? I wrote a book. There's another edition of the book coming out. So I've been working on an extra bit for that. Audrey's working on an extra bit for that. And so I'll give you more details as that comes along. But yeah, what else is happening? What else do we do? What else am I doing? I don't know. Rapidly trying to figure out how I'm going to, you know, make work in this in this new world of you can't be in it in the same space as people that you don't spend time with, which is weird. But yeah, trying, trying to do that. But it's actually really quite interesting. The last couple of weeks have been interesting here in lockdown, but it's interesting. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It is uncomfortable being with the uncertainty of it all, but it's okay. If uh, you do want to get in touch with me, it's really simple. You just send me an email, send Osher email at gmail.com. I am on Instagram. I am on Twitter. Those things are not on my phone. I'll tell you why in a second. But if you do want to get in touch with me, send Osher email at gmail.com. I check my email on a laptop and um, that's how you can find me. I do adore seeing where you listen to this show. Um, It's called a Podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E. And I love to see how you do things while you're listening to a podcast. I was cleaning a bike listening to a podcast with a baby on my back. was awesome. Kelly is rearranging the towel cupboard. Uh, Tanya is going for a walk with a dog that has disappeared in some super lush ground cover. So there's the back end of a dog and like some sort of, I guess, to the dog's shoulder height greenery. And it's in there in some sort of bushland having a sniff, seeing what's under there. And uh, both Tanya and Jack, who also sent me a great picture, Jack on the south coast of Victoria, photos on the roadside after the bushfires, pretty devastating pictures actually, even a couple months later. But both Tanya and Jack were listening to the Ian Walker episode about democratic reform, which is uh, the episode from last week. If you haven't listened to that episode about democratic reform, it's a cracker. Like I said, there was a few episodes that I had in the can and I was ready to roll out, but they weren't quite, mm, shall we say, appropriate for the time 
uh, I will definitely get them out there because the way that we are thinking about the world is changing every day and they will become more and more. I just wouldn't want them to be wasted. But they'll, I'll roll them out in a week or two because we'll still be in lockdown, but the way we're thinking about things might have changed enough that it'll make a bit more sense as to why I'm playing them there. So those extra episodes are coming out real soon. But yeah, the Ian Walker episode about... Um, about sortition and about uh, citizen juries is freaking awesome if you haven't listened to it. And Shane, brilliantly emailing from a beautiful waterfront. He runs a hotel in New Zealand, um, which is right on the water. Uh, he's on day 15 of their 28-day lockdown. Beautiful cup of tea there in the sunset, but no one's staying at his hotel, so he owns the place. So normally they stay out the back, but he's enjoying his cup of tea at one of the suites right on the water. So Ripper, thanks heaps, Shane. And Amanda who sent an email of her cats, Harper and Atticus. Extra points if you can guess why the names of her cat are excellent. Amanda's working from home, so much so that her work sent her a new monitor and a new chair, and the cats were extremely excited about the boxes that they came in. Uh, great to hear that workplaces are adapting to this new world, uh, a world which we may be in for some time. And that's good. That's good because we're gonna, we have to adapt. As humans, that's a good thing that we're doing. Speaking of working from home, I did want to share a few things that I have implemented in my life that may be of use to you. I'm just sharing what what has been working for me. Things that help me so that when I'm here at home, there's a, a boundary between work and not work. And I'm trying to make those boundaries as clear as I possibly can. Now, for a start, as you know, I don't have Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook on my phone. And like an eight-year-old boy, my wife has my screen time passcodes. So even if I wanted to install them or look at them cheating on a web browser, I can't. Audrey would need to unlock. have to hand my phone to Audrey and keep put the passcode in. But she won't. And I don't ask. So it never happens. So they're off my phone and it's brilliant. It is a very powerful thing to do. But there is another thing that I would recommend that highly and that you even, you know, you would schedule in your social media checking time. We've talked about that on this show before that um, companies, particularly news companies, particularly now, their business model is to keep you looking at them for as long as possible. What makes you look at things, things that make you feel mm, frightened or afraid or uncertain, then you're like, oh, I need to f- do something about this. I'll click on more stuff. Their business model is to keep you looking. And by keeping you looking, that means you're not in control of what you're doing. So taking those uh, things off your phone can be very, very helpful. And scheduling in time, I'm going to give myself 15 minutes. I'm going to, like personally, I, I, I now only check my news on the ABC website. That's the place I look for my news. I'm there for 10 minutes once a day, and that's it. I'll briefly glance at Twitter for about five minutes, and then I'm out, and that's it. I don't look at any more social media. That, that kind of gives me the brief update, and I'm, I'm done for the day. There's another very, very powerful thing that you can do on your phone. It's another thing I do in my phone. It takes less than a minute. It's super easy to do, and it is incredibly powerful. Go into your settings on your phone in Apple or Android. I know you, are, you know where they are, and... Turn off your notifications. Turn them all off. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. When you, as a human being, decide you're going to do something, that it gives you a sense of will, of purpose, of control over your life. All right? Say, for example, you can probably hear Wolf upstairs. I just put him up in the, the playpen, or the rage cage, as we call it. Wolf is calling out, right? So if I go up there to see what Wolf is calling out, and on the way my phone pings, and it's, I don't know, bloody the news app telling me that there's a there's something that matches an alert I put in about COVID-19 or something. I've been interrupted into my will, my choice of action. I am no longer controlling myself. I am now being controlled by an algorithm 
ultimately an app that's trying to make money out of my attention. Similarly, when you work, you're deciding that you're going to use your time to get stuff done. And when you want to be focused, you should decide what you do with your precious breaths and your coveted minutes of your own life. Why should YouTube, Snapchat, or some app you forgot you downloaded be allowed to distract you, to tell you what to do, what to look at, or what to think about when you're concentrating, when you are concentrating on something else altogether? You wouldn't let someone come into your house, tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, I appreciate that uh, you're trying to be with the kids right now, but did you know that you can get this top for 10 bucks right now? Right, right now, right now. That shouldn't happen. You wouldn't let a person come into your house and do it. So why let an algorithm, why let your phone tell you what to do? And, and, and because we are conditioned to respond to whether it be a text message or a tweet or a, a direct message or something on Messenger or whatever, we're conditioned that it's polite to respond straight away. We, we suddenly are no longer in control of what we wanted to do. So turn them all off. Turn them all off. If you want, I do leave. I leave the text messages on and I leave my phone on. But on this iPhone that I've got, I can put it on do not disturb. So even then those things won't happen unless someone calls me twice in a row or if they respond back with their text message urgent, then it will come through. But that's also a factor. Like I do that because you know what? 30 years ago, people got shit done because they sat down and they didn't have email. Push notification didn't show up until 2003 when BlackBerry did it. So before that, life was very, very different. And people got a lot of stuff done. People were really productive. So, yeah, I, I turn them all off. Group chats, they all have an option to mute for an hour, a day, a week, a year, whatever. I will often visit a group chat, the ones, you know, with my mates, and I'll engage for a little while uh, in one of the peak hours in the morning or the afternoon, and then I'll, boom, I'll mute it for the rest of the day. And that's fine. Emails. You should do them when you decide to do them. I, I do them when I, well, hopefully when I decide to do them, usually in a chunk at the beginning or the end of the day. And then what I do, because again, we're conditioned to respond straight away, I use a little thing on my, on my email that sends when I want it to send. So if it's something towards the end of the day, like four or five o'clock and I'm sending something, if I write, people go, oh, I've got to fix this before the end of the day. And then boom, there's an open you know, loop of communication that goes into the evening and my subconscious is wondering about it, right? So I'll often schedule those things to send at 8.30 the next morning. And that way, when I get around to Wolfie's nap about 9 a.m., I can, you know, either, you know, it's, you know what I'm saying, right? So similarly, speaking of email, do you really need to be told about the latest furniture from that shop that you bought a side table from two years ago? You don't. You don't. Is your wardrobe just full of clothes because, you know, you clicked on an email even though you didn't know you needed that thing right before the email arrived? My little brother taught me this one. It's really good. Go into your um, search bar on your email program, type in unsubscribe and unsubscribe from everything. If you couldn't be bothered to click on everything and then go through all the bells and whistles, really simple. Create an email filter. They're really simple to make in whatever email program you've got. They've simplified that quite a bit, so it's pretty easy to do. Create an email filter and make a folder and put the keywords in unsubscribe or manage preferences or manage email preferences. Put a couple of commas between those search terms and then send them all to a folder that you will look at when you choose to, if you choose to, or just send them straight to the trash. I just send them straight to the trash. You will be thanking me. 
because you don't need to have this stuff pushed at you. You should decide when you want to buy some stuff. You should decide when you want to book a holiday. You shouldn't have to. Well, you're not going to book a holiday, but you know what I mean. You shouldn't then go, oh, I wish I could afford to go to oh, Cancun or wherever the fuck they're trying to send you. And then you've got this feeling in your heart, everyone else has gone to Cancun. There's a picture of some people having a good time. They're about my age because they've specifically marketed to me because I bought something from some website somewhere that knows how old I am. Blah. And now I feel shit because I'm not in Cancun. Fuck that. That would never have happened if you had unsubscribed. So unsubscribe to that shit. The phone is a really handy thing to have, all right? It's incredible. It's changed all our lives. It allows us to be in this lockdown and still work and do stuff. It can be super stimulating, though. But the kind of stimulus is usually something that takes you away from what you'd rather be doing, like doing productive, effective, meaningful work or being with your family or making a healthy meal for yourself or doing some yoga or walking for a walk or being with the dogs or just looking at the damn flowers, you know, without taking a photo of them. Just look at them, you know. It only takes a few minutes to do both those things, turning off the notifications and and unsubscribing from everything. But I promise the quiet and productive, like you'll be like, why is this like everything so quiet and it feels really weird and I'm not being poked all the time and, and, and tapped on the shoulder and, you know, been alerted to some shit. No. Now you've got all this room in your head to go about your day and do things and you're not constantly being agitated. Because, you know, what makes you want to A, buy something or B, read an article, something that makes you go, oh, I'm going to miss out if I don't buy this thing or, oh my God, that sounds scary. I need to figure out how I can keep myself safe. So I need to read about it. All right. So those are the two things they trigger to make sure you click. Insulate yourself from them. You don't need them takes a few minutes, but it'll be really, really good. Let me know what you think. If you've in, implicated it, implicated it? Im, instigated it. <laughs> instigated it. Send us your email at gmail.com. I, I hope that helps. Those are the things that have been helping me as we continue in this strange COVID-19 lockdown world. I hope you're keeping fit. I hope you're taking control of the things you can, accepting the things you can't, eating good food, it's a deliberate act, as we spoke about last week. It's a deliberate act to maintain good mental health as it is to maintain good physical health, but it is so worth it. It's well, well, well worth it. So let me tell you about my guest today. Sophie Hardcastle is back for her second visit on the show, and I'm thrilled that we can bring you this conversation today. Sophie is an author, artist, screenwriter, and a scholar who at the moment is in Sydney, Australia. We'll get into those reasons in a moment. Since she and I spoke last, she was a provost scholar at Worcester College at the University of Oxford, one of the first two Australians to receive that scholarship. She has been artist in residence in Antarctica. She's written three books, her memoir, Running Like China, her first novel, Breathing Underwater, and now her second novel, Below Deck, which is out right now wherever you get your books. Now, right up top here, her new book, Below Deck, is ultimately about mm, consent. If you feel that you're not up for a conversation about consent today, no problem. You can come back another time. There's plenty of other episodes of this show to listen to. However, and Sophie and I do talk about this, as someone who has indeed been horrified by and been triggered by and turned away from things that have triggered and horrified me, since it I had learned to face and stand in the face of those things that have horrified and triggered me in a safe environment. I would put it, things have gotten a lot better. So I would put it to you that spending time safely exposing yourself to difficult things actually makes them less potent over time. And like I said, Sophie and I, we do talk about that, but only you know where you are today. 
So I'll, I'll leave that up to you. It is a tricky topic, but it is clearly a topic we need to talk about. So let's talk about it. You can find Sophie online at sophiehardcastle.com. She's on Instagram, sophie underscore hardcastle, S-O-P-H-I-E underscore hardcastle, or one word. Enjoy this conversation over Skype with Sophie Hardcastle. Oh, hi. Hey. <laughs> hey. Oh, it's so good to see you. Oh, it's so good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Of of course. Are you uh you're you're not in Oxford. No, I am in Maroubra now. <laughs> yeah, the last time we spoke you were you were heading off to Oxford and it was extraordinarily exciting. And what led up to you coming back? What were the last few days there like? Oh wow. It was it was interesting because I basically left Oxford with the intention of being in Australia for four months and then was planning on going back to Oxford, doing a UK tour there, and then spending the rest of the year in mainland Europe doing a European tour for my book. And currently none of that is happening. So yeah. I am now living in Australia again. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Yeah, it's an extraordinary time of uncertainty for, I guess, anyone that doesn't work in grocery, food, delivery services, or healthcare, um, <laughs> you know, the rest, yeah. <laughs> every other part of the economy, anything to do with any sort of service industry, everyone's kind of like, well, I guess we'll just wait and see. And see what happens. It's wild. It is. It's an ex- yeah. extraordinary time in history, Sophie. It is. I know. I'm like. I'm just trying to think of what would, how we would have reacted had you told us this was going to happen when we last spoke. Yeah. I had this exact conversation with a producing friend of mine. I was telling her yesterday. I said, if I told you in January, the last time we spoke, if I told you in January that by mid March, both of us would be like trying to figure out what television looks like in the future because the economy as we know it is now gone. <laughs> you'd, yeah. think, you'd think I was, you know, I might need to get back on the heavy meds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Well, before everything went kind of in different directions for you, how was your experience living over in Oxford? Last time we spoke on this show, you'd written two books and you were you were getting ready to head out, head out there with, uh, you know, the world at your feet and... Um, it was all it was all very, very exciting when you got there, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was. Although interestingly, I had probably one of the worst depressive episodes I've ever had in the first three months of being there. Something that I thankfully came out of was able to see a doctor quite quickly there had the luxury, I guess, of being a British citizen as well. So I was on the NHS, like had access to free healthcare. Yeah, and and was looked after very well, came out of that episode, and then produced more work, I think, in 2018 than I have in my my entire life. Nine months after that episode, I wrote, I think, 24 essays, a novel, and a TV show. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Quite wild. Well, I, I have I had a similar uh, I had a similar run in about uh, July last year, right before Wolf was born. Yeah, I had to get back on meds, 
not the howitzer cannons of the antipsychotics that I was on last time. I'm just on garden variety SSRIs now. But I've mm. spoken on this show about the things that led up to that and the, the intervention that my wife needed to do around me getting back on meds. Just because people may not realise this has happened to you before. You know what to mm-hmm. do. You know what you needed to do. What were the kind of warning signs? And when did you start to realise, oh, hang on, this is kind of happening again? Yeah, so I think... In the sort of three or four months leading up to me leaving in 2017, I, in hindsight, can recognize now quite easily that I was high or that I was manic. But at the time, I was thinking, well, I'm going off to Oxford and all of these amazing things happening in my life. And really sort of, yeah, went with that, thinking that that was my, I guess, like with, with any mental illness, and in particular with bipolar, you're always trying to judge what your middle is or you know what who you are when you're stable and when you are most yourself and so I think I mistook that episode as being just really great and everything was amazing and then like I had quite a severe drop that came very quickly and then I I guess like you know I've been there before and it was no less painful, that episode, but it was far less scary in that I was like, I know this place, I've been here before, I know the topography of this landscape, and I know how to walk out of it, I guess. I can only say this for myself. I I denied it for probably a little too long. It took my wife to, I'd just written a book about coming off meds. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to have to admit that I needed to get back on. <laughs> you know, my ego was still in there going, no, fight through. <laughs> Did your ego kind of jump in there and try and say, no, 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 you're good. Keep shouldering on. Uh, probably not. Yeah. Interestingly, I, like it absolutely has in the past. I'd say like I recognized with like acute attention to detail that this was somewhere that I was in a really dark place and was just kind of like had my arms open, like, please, somebody. Uh, basically, I'd come off an antipsychotic and then had to go back onto it. Yeah. And that, like, the difference that that made within a few weeks was, I mean, it meant that I could study and I could enjoy being there and I could do all the things that I felt like were sort of at my fingertips, but that I wasn't well enough to actually sink into. Yeah, that, that that's the thing that I can most definitely relate to is that after a couple of weeks when those drugs kick in, you're like, oh, man, what was I doing? <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can function yeah. again. This is so nice. I can yeah. breathe and I don't have to yeah. think about how I'm getting to the shops. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It, it is good. So how did you then manage that period of extraordinary creativity? Obviously, you want to keep an eye out for being up because you know i know just like anyone yeah it feels amazing look how much stuff i'm doing i'm doing so many things i don't need to sleep look how much shit i'm getting done this is amazing (laughs) how do you keep an eye out for when prolific workload starts tipping up into um i might be going a little too far here yeah i think the the most important thing that i did was try very quickly to establish like a support network you know because i moved to a new country i didn't know anyone at the university and so as soon as I sort of coming out, started coming out of that depressive episode, I, it was really good timing and that it was coming into spring and um, the days were getting longer and everybody was, you know, out and about and doing things in the like student community was really active. And so I very much put a lot of my energy into just like making new connections with people and really like finding my, my group who could then sort of 
anchor me or that I could just keep coming back to that like this is me and this is who I am yeah I guess like giving insights to the people that were around me and you know sharing with them my experiences and kind of allowing them to know what to look for if I did start to you know get a bit too high and that is so important and you know what Sophie it's so relevant at this time as we as we all start to lock down into this period of we don't know what like uh, this mm-hmm. kind of global moment of like never before in history has the entire planet at the same time on the same day faced something so profound like this and the coping strategies no matter where you are in the world are, are very similar to what you've just described you know getting through this with your mental health intact you have to be connected to other humans you have to deliberately connect with other humans because you can't just rely on your day-to-day motions to force interactions with other people, particularly if you're, you're stuck inside and assembling that team around you is just, it's so vital, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how lucky are we in a way that we are living in the 21st century and we have Skype and all of these ways that we can virtually interact with each other and that we can connect and that, yeah, that that we're not a hundred years ago where we're writing letters that might or might not get to our loved ones. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Podcasts would be very difficult via mail. <laughs> but I bet yeah. you there's somewhere there's a hipster with a beard down to his nipples who is doing it. Like, <laughs> guarantee. Oh, podcasts, really? I do mail correspondence with a. <laughs> yeah. I hand type them on a Smith Corona that I restored from 1897. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know that guy exists. <laughs> he does. Yeah, he yeah. Does. He lives in North Carolina and he wears Birkenstocks. <laughs> yeah, that guy entirely exists. <laughs> I think it's what, one of the other things that and it's something that I'm, I'm happy to hear another person talk about it because you mentioned letting the people around you kind of know what to look for. <laughs> Why is it important to let other people around you know your warning signs? No, no, the people listening may not be dealing with any kind of mental health issue, but they know when they're not right. Why is it important to let other people around you know, hey, if you ever hear me doing this or, or, or see me just like like smashing the pokies every day. Can you just tap me on the shoulder? Just let me know. Why is it important to let, you know, people around you kind of know what your signs are? Certainly, like speaking from my own experience, when those signs start to manifest, they're often in the points when I am at my most vulnerable because I might not necessarily be like consciously aware of it. And so, yeah, I guess like it's about putting those like feelers out there almost or, yeah, building that network and making people aware of what to look for. So that when you're not consciously aware of what's going on, you know that somebody is going to be. And that, for me, I think that's 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 absolutely key. And then it's it's trusting that when that person says, "Hey, remember how you told me if this ever happens to let you know, it's happening," and you just have to go, "All oh, right, okay, I've got a yeah." And it's hard because for me, it's really hard. It's Audrey in my case. It's my wife. It's hard because I don't want to have to believe that I'm at a point where she's had to point something out, but then I have to go, well, Mm. hang on. She's the one with a healthy brain in this situation. And my brain, it's kind of like right right now I'm looking at you through my my glasses and they're kind of dirty. So it doesn't matter where I look, there's a smudge. So even (laughs) though every, every part of the world looks like there's a smudge on it right now, 
okay, but I can't see the world any other way because there's a smudge on my glasses, you know. But yeah. Audrey's seeing the world differently. I just have to trust that she's got a clearer view. That's such a great analogy. <laughs> it's not. I'm surely not the first person to come up with it, but it is. It's it's a really important thing to trust that someone who's thinking about the world without using my brain has got my best interests, mm-hmm. and just to remember that in those moments. Oh fuck! Here, okay, here I am. Okay, I told myself if this would ever happen, then this is where we are, and you just got just accepting it. And when you when you did make the call, and when you did go and see a doctor, did you feel a sense of control back amongst yourself? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Like a sense of control. I think feeling good about taking responsibility in that way, you know, because that is really looking after yourself and, you know, that kind of healthy me would be proud of that decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like you wouldn't, if I'd slipped on the way down the stairs to come talk to you today and and I'd broken my forearm and it was hanging at a horrible angle and I said, no, 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 it'll it'll be okay. I, I won't need to go to a doctor. You'd look at me like you're I was a complete fucking idiot, you know. <laughs> it'll be right. I'll just drink a couple of beers. She'll be sweet. Uh, no, you'd be like, no, I've got to take responsibility. I've got to take control. I've got to, you know, go and get this sorted out so it can get better. Yeah. And the same goes for your health. When you got into this you know, phase of of creativity. Now, for you, it's writing, it's art. For others, it might be cooking. It might be the way they parent, the way they talk to their kids, the way they garden, whatever. How does it come to you? Does it does it get you in the in the morning between when you realise you're awake and when you actually get out of bed, or does it come to you when you're I don't know walking around the block? Or like, how does it pop in? The creativity. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think what was interesting about being at Oxford is it's it's like such a rigorous environment. Like I'd never been in an academic institution like that before. I'd never had to treat my creative work as work, really. Like I think with my first two books, they were very much uh, books that I wrote because I was really like enjoyed the process and was kind of. I, I'd say my second book in particular, like the young adult novel, was very much like a fun and enjoyable activity that I really liked doing. And this book, I think that I ended up writing at Oxford was very different in that I treated it like work. And so I got up, got dressed, had breakfast, and then rode my bike into town, went to the library and sat in the library all day. And that that was like, I had this uh, like physical separation between my home life and dreaming and just kind of, you know, my hobbies and day-to-day activities. And then like being in the library surrounded by these like books that are centuries old. And that was like where I turned on and where I worked. I can't imagine how amazing the library at Oxford University smells. (laughs) It smells pretty good. I I never went to Oxford. A mate of mine was a fellow at Cambridge. He was a research fellow at Cambridge and I did get to go up there and there's something to be said for riding around uh, Oxford or Cambridge in a cable knit sweater on a bicycle and um, go, oh, yeah, so that's the apple tree that Isaac Newton saw the apple on and there's the, you know, <laughs> oh, there's, uh, Stephen, yeah. there's Stephen Hawking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> something to be said for being being surrounded by it all. Yeah, like, I mean, certainly like being a writer in English, like in the English-speaking world, you know, it was incredible to be reading essays and papers that, people had written in the same library as me 400 years before. Yeah. And, 
you know, that's so many of the references. It was like you look, go to the back of the book and like, or, or read the acknowledgements or figure out where they were when they wrote it. It was like, oh, actually, they're at Trinity College and they were probably in the Radcliffe camera, the library that I was in as well. And so, yeah, that was just like, for the first time, I thought, I think like it really helped me to develop my creative practice as well because it situated me for the first time in the context of a long line of other writers. And, you know, my teacher at art school would always say that you had to know the rules in order to break them. And so I think for the first time with this book, I was like, okay, how has this story been written before and how can I make it my own and how can I break the rules to make it new? Right. And as a story goes, it's uh, – how do I put this, Sophie? It's definitely not light reading. Uh, it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a heavy tale. Before we get into it, you know, have you – you know, what are your, what are your, because I should ask, you know, what are your thoughts? Because when we spoke last, I was, I had yet to delve into acceptance commitment therapy and it didn't, the ex- work in acceptance commitment therapy made me really rethink things like trigger warnings. It made me really kind of think about deliberately avoiding things that have traumatized me in the past. In my own experience, Sophie, just now makes them more frightening. The more I avoid them, the worse they get. And there was a time on this show where I would do trigger warnings all the time. And I've been doing them less and less and less because of my own experience of being re-exposed to things that had traumatized me in the past and just accepting the, the pain in my body that they caused, knowing that, yes, it's painful, but it makes it less painful in the long run just by being around it. So I was wondering, if you have you put much thought to how to talk about a book that is essentially all about, you know, consent? Yeah. I, I guess, I mean, so much of the book is about choice, right? So it's about the choices that we make and the choices that we don't make, the choices that get made for us. And so I think, I think it is worth saying this book speaks to sexual violence if that is a trigger for you here's your opportunity to make the choice of whether you want to, you know, expose yourself to that or not. And so I think it's not up to you or I to decide what's appropriate for someone. And so, yeah, I think like as long as we're putting the choice in, uh, giving somebody the choice, then that's what's most important for me. Right. Has it, I mean, obviously you were going to, go on a big book tour and, uh, you know, talk about this quite a bit. It's a delicate subject to even approach. Did you choose to write it? Did you want to write it? Or is it just an idea that came to you and went, you know what, this is a way to have this idea out there in a, in a way that hasn't been done before. And I think mm. I can add to the conversation around it by doing it this way. Yeah, I think in a, in a huge way, it stemmed out of me being really angry And it also came, so the the book sort of in its first iteration was a Facebook status that I wrote in response to Me Too. Um, So when Tarana Burke's like coined term Me Too, sort of I exploded internationally in 2017, I wrote a Facebook status about an experience that I'd had and how what was worse for me was not the experience, what was worse for me was the first person I told about it, they didn't believe me and they asked me why didn't I just scream. And so this Facebook status turned into two things. It was an interrogation of the reasons why survivors and victims of sexual violence don't always scream. And it was also an interrogation of a lot of the conversations that I was having with people in my life when that movement did explode on social media, where a lot of the people in my life who this 
experience fell outside of their scope of experience. So for people that hadn't ever themselves experienced sexual violence, and in particular men in my life that hadn't experienced it themselves, kept coming to me saying how surprised they were by the sheer volume of stories that they were seeing on social media. And I, it got me thinking about like, who do we turn to when we are carrying these stories and how, you know, like it was like, I was living in a house with 15 people and there were so many people in the house that had experienced this. And then I was kind of so shocked that a few people, a handful of people in the house just had no idea how this was all around them all the time and that these stories were kind of invisible. And that was what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write a story that you couldn't look away from. And the best place that I found that I could explore that and make it glaringly obvious was on a boat because you're in the middle of the ocean and you can't go anywhere. So all of these things, they get swept under the rug and I easily like we turn a blind eye to on land. I was like, set it in the middle of the ocean and it will all become clear sort of thing. You lived in a house with 15 people? <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was um, three terrace houses that were all joint at the back and we just had the most amazing, eclectic mix of people living together. That's almost a commune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really was. It was. We were just like such a family, I guess. Like there was wildly different political views in the house, vastly different genders or different sexual orientations different races and it was just this like very diverse mix of people that all banded together when it really counted and we all just like had each other's backs it's really amazing what a great focus group for you to test your hypothesis on straight away (laughs) yeah exactly so when you were talking about the people that hadn't experienced such things I'm, i'm gonna assume there was a lot of guys who went what do you mean yeah yeah definitely and i think the women in the house, even if they hadn't experienced it, they'd often they had heard stories from other women, and I think a few of the men had heard stories. I'm careful not to generalize because I know that men do experience sexual violence. Of the people that I was living with, a few of them had heard about their partners experiencing sexual violence, but the men that were really shocked were the ones that hadn't experienced it themselves. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's real interesting that we're having this conversation today because we sent my kid to this school, which I'm thrilled that we can. It's an all-girls school, and if they have to study, say they're studying the scientific method, they will study Marie Curie and 
x-rays. Mm-hmm. If they have to study something in biology, they'll study a particular woman and how she discovered something. Like they weave feminine power and mastery and essential contribution to humanity in every single subject. And I, I adore their mission is just, just create just powerful women. And I, I love that they go there. So in her legal studies class, because she's working, she's doing school from home, right? So we, we talk about what she did at school today. And it's all about consent. Mm. It's a particular case they're, they're talking about. And I'm wondering, when I hear what she's being taught, and I think back to what I got taught, and bear in mind, you know, I'm 30 years older than she is, so there's quite a gap in, in education. It feels to me that we're failing, or we have failed, not only generations of women, but also generations of men by not talking about this. And I, I don't know how any other way to put it than people can find themselves in a situation they may not have realised wasn't okay until after the fact and then gone, oh, hang on, that did happen. Oh, I was a part of that. Oh, no. Yeah, Absolutely. I I wrote an essay about perpetuating the myth of the lone wolf attacker and this. I I guess the reason why I wanted to write a story as well where the survivor knows her attacker, I guess, is because in 85% of cases, victims and survivors of sexual violence and sexual assault do know they're the perpetrator. And this sort of like area where the edges are blurry and and it's like watery borders yeah, young men need to know those edges just as clearly as young women do. And I guess like I wanted to write a story that was perhaps ambiguous as to where the line was because I thought that if I wrote something that was really clear-cut, really obvious, people would be like, okay, yes, that was what that was and they'll shelve it. I wanted to write something where you're like, hang on, what – role did she play? What role did he play? Where's the line? At what point did he cross it? And for the reader to ask themselves, okay, so where was the line? That's really what I wanted to do. What are your thoughts about, because I only know the phrase because we were just talking about it over lunch, a robust discussion with young people, young men, young women about this idea of enthusiastic ongoing consent? Yeah, I think like any kind of intimacy is a dialogue, you know, isn't it? It's like your body responding to their body and it it has to be that like ongoing conversation and we have to start thinking about sex in like in any iteration as a conversation and as something that both people are contributing to. I, I guess another model that may have existed for as long a long time is like, oh, we've started this and when the man comes, it's over. And that's it, mm. <laughs> you know, and that, that, that leads to many other things like about, well, what about feminine pleasure and what about, there's, there's a lot going on there, but for a long time that, and that's also been perpetuated in popular culture as well in, in films and music, in, in books that the idea of any other outcome other than penetrative sex and the man having an orgasm isn't after a certain point an acceptable outcome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, that's also uh, like a very heteronormative. Absolutely, yeah. You know, like for me as a queer person, you know, sex doesn't always look like that. And so I think it's, yeah, really important to be thinking of, or for our, like us all to be thinking of, and also just to like be seeing this in stories and in movies and in like popular culture, as you said, like to be seeing different 
ways of having sex and that it isn't, uh, I don't want to be too explicit, but <laughs> I guess like, yeah, the idea of penetrative sex between a man and a woman is so limiting. And, and so much of this book, even though Ollie in this book is a straight woman, she still, yeah, experiences like the healthy sex that she does have shows like such a broader scope of what sex can be and what it is and how healthy and nourishing it is when it is that ongoing conversation. And then on the other end of the spectrum, what it is when it's not sex, like sexual violence and assault is not sex. It's violence, you know? And then I think like that delineation is really what I was trying to bring up in the book. Yeah. Once you start looking into these kind of dynamics, the only bias, I don't remember the name of it, but the bias of like if you buy a red Corolla, then all you see mm. on the street for a month is red Corollas, even though there was probably as many red Corollas a month before, but now yeah. you see it everywhere you look. Once you start getting your head around this idea of, of sex being a conversation and you know that, that intimacy being a, a dialogue between two people, when you don't see that, do you just start to see it everywhere? Do you start to see it in language? Do you start to see it in in the way people address each other when you, you start to see this kind of dominance just kind of everywhere? Yeah, I think so. I th yeah, and I mean, maybe writing Below Deck was trying in some way to like fill a gap that I felt where I like wanted to see other iterations of sex represented in mainstream media and, and in the stories that we tell and in the stories that we look to for guidance. Like it, it, we can't speak enough to how important it is to see other stories and other ways of being represented. I think it's, you know, and being young and, and trying to negotiate sex for the first time, like it, or at really at any stage in your life. And I think yeah, it, it, we can't speak highly enough for how important it is to like see stories that resonate and like to identify yourself in stories that are bigger than you. If you were, let's say, for example, let's, let's pretend COVID-19 hasn't shut the world down and you're invited to go and speak to a bunch of, you know, 16-year-old kids at a co-ed high school about this book, as you know, you may well have been mm. over the course of promoting this book, what would you say to that group of young men and women about consent? My first thought was actually, have you seen the YouTube video where it explains consent with a cup of tea? Please take me through it. Okay, so it's this brilliant film that actually put into perspective or helped me to understand something that happened to me when I was 16 so clearly in two minutes the onus was completely taken off me and I just shred all of the shame. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, that's where the responsibility lied. It wasn't my fault for what happened. It was this person that, like, abused my body, basically. And so what this video does is it takes sex and says, okay, so imagine sex as a cup of tea. You ask someone if they want a cup of tea, they say, oh, yeah, I'd love one. Thank you. That's so kind. You can go and make the cup of tea, give it to them. They might, if they still want the tea, when you've made the tea and you've boiled the kettle and you've put the tea bag in and the milk and everything, you know, you've gone to all this effort to make the tea and you give it to them and they want it, then they'll drink the tea and be like, amazing. Thank you. I love this tea. This was such nice tea. But at one point, if you 
ask them that they want the tea, they say yes, and then you go to all the effort of making it, and then you go to give it to them, and they say, oh, actually, nah, you you know what? I've changed my mind. You don't force them to drink the tea. Similarly, if you make the tea and then you go to give it to the person and the person is passed out and unconscious, is your like gut reaction to make them drink the tea or would you be like, hang on, is this person breathing? Wait a second, let me put the tea down. Let me check that they're breathing, potentially call an ambulance, put them in the recovery position. Like that's how we should respond to somebody being unconscious. And it was so simple and yet just made it so glaringly obvious. It's distilled in such a simple way that made it a really complex issue. Just like, yes. And so I feel like if I'd gone into schools, maybe I just would have played the video and use that as a starting point to then be able to speak about sex as being a negotiation and and an open dialogue and a continuing conversation, as you said. So you, you you mentioned someone who's passed out or really drunk. Where does something like alcohol play a role uh, when it comes to things like consent? Let's say you're in front of the group of kids again. What would you say to that group of kids about how drugs and alcohol affect the, the giving of the tea or the desiring of the tea or the idea that, mm-hmm. you know, how would you talk about that? Yeah, so I think that, gosh, it's so hard because on one hand you want to say to young people that, you know, when you're like on the cusp of adulthood and you're figuring out who you are and there's all of these really difficult questions that you're sort of grappling with and you're trying to work out how to be intimate with another person. I think alcohol and drugs, when you lose your inhibitions and your thoughts aren't clear and your decision-making is like inhibited or weaker because you don't have clarity and you don't have a clear mind, I think that it's important for young people to be making these decisions while they're sober and to learning their bodies and learning to have healthy sex is an ongoing conversation. Like I think those are really important things to figure out for yourself when you are sober and when you do have a clear mind. And like, yeah, I think that that's like something that young people need to take responsibility of. In saying that, I'm also conscious not to... I hope that what I'm saying isn't making it sound like if you get drunk, you deserve this. Oh, God, no. No, I would never I would never think that you would mean that in a million years. Uh, I guess I just wanted to talk to the complexities. It's already a complicated situation. Mm. And when you start bringing alcohol into it, a drug that impairs judgment of everyone that takes it, uh, it just gets even more complicated. I have heard it described as try to make cold state decisions. And remember your cold state decisions when you're in a hot state. So, mm-hmm. for example, you and your partner, when you're, you know, a teenager, you may have thought to yourself, no, you know what? I, I'm not quite ready for sex just yet. I'm ready for a few other things, but I'm not ready for the main show that everyone talks about. And then when you're in it and the hormones are firing, it's the idea is that, oh, hang on, what did I decide before? My body was deciding, you know, like taking over. I decided to not do this part. Okay. All right. All right. So try to make a cold state decision and keep to your cold state decisions when you do find yourself in that, in that hot state, which is easier said than done. That's the, that's the thing. (laughs) It is. And I think young people trying to do that and trying to like respond to their bodies and remember what their cold state decision was, is going to be 
a hundred times harder if they're mixing substances into yeah. those decisions. So I would, yeah, be trying to like encourage them to mm-hmm. stay away from that as much as they could. Yeah. But it's, let's not forget that it, you'd speak of it as a conversation. Mm. It really is the most incredible, intense, beautiful, most wonderful communication you can ever have with another human being. It is beyond words. It's beyond any kind of artistic expression. There's nothing that I can paint or sing or write that could possibly make you, Sophie, understand what it's like for me and someone I dearly love to be in that moment, Mm -hmm. all right? And to trivialise it through a three-second-long looping gif on the internet. Yeah. And this is, you know, I'm speaking as someone who uh, spent way too long addicted to internet pornography. It really kind of diminishes that. But I remember what it was like, Sophie, I remember what it was like to be just not even 18 and and just I couldn't think of anything else. I literally couldn't think of anything else. (laughs) I was supposed to be working at schools like I appreciate that, but my brain and my body right now are only focused on one thing and it's very difficult to do anything else. Very difficult to focus on anything else. I know that. And I think that's also something to acknowledge, you know, that as a young human being, I mean, we live in a society right now where the part of, you know, procreation and, and that sort of stuff, we tend to delay that. But 16, 17, 18, that's like biologically, that's the boom, that's the prime years. Like, <laughs> you know, a female body, male body, that's it. You're ready to go any time of day or night. And, and you know, it's a cruel trick that we've played upon ourselves. <laughs> try and get young people to try and concentrate when that's happening to them. <laughs> yeah, that's when you're doing your HSC, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's fascinating. I tell you, man, <laughs> it's fascinating. I don't think anyone's ever tried to market a book during a global pandemic before, so I guess marketing teams are trying to figure out how to do it around the world. What are some creative ways that you and the guys in, at the publishing house have figured out about how you might do this, besides podcasts, obviously? Well, uh, so I guess podcast is like kind of the big the big thing right now. Yeah. Um, I was supposed to speak at Newcastle Writers Festival and we recorded a podcast that we basically made our panel virtual cool. panel, which was really cool and it went really well. Yeah, I again, so grateful that we're living in the time that we are not speaking to the pandemic, but speaking to the fact that we have technology and we can connect and yeah, sort of like use these tools in really interesting and creative ways. Yeah, it is super challenging, but it's an opportunity for us as a global society to really think about how we've been doing things and is there a different way that we could do it and achieve mm. a similar or better result. Just because we've yeah. this is the way we've always done stuff, does that mean it's the best way to do stuff? I think over the coming weeks and months, we will find applying to many, many, many more things that we could possibly comprehend, Yeah, which is really interesting. You You mentioned when you wrote the creativity became work it became a process and I when I was in California I, I, I lived with a, a person who went to the what's it the Chicago school the, there's like one big fancy art school in America called it's like I don't know it's like the Yale of the art world or the, the, the Rhode Island School of Design 
Maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's in, it's in, I it's in Chicago. It. Anyway, but she told me, I, I asked her, I was like, what do they teach you? Because you've got to submit a portfolio to get in. So clearly you know how to put a paintbrush in a pot. Like obviously you know what she goes, I don't know. It's all about process. It's all about teaching you that the creative process becomes work. And what she described before, you've got to get out of bed. You've got to get out of your pajamas. You've got to get on your bike. You've got to go and ride down to the studio. You've got to just do it and get amongst it and deliberately deliberately do it. So in this time of lockdown, how are you managing to keep your, use those skills of, you know, what you've learned about your creative process, your deliberate action into creating work? How are you using those skills to maintain your your mental health in a good space? Mm. So I guess the most difficult thing that I've been finding so far is that I don't have a clear physical separation. So I'm working in my room and so the thing that I am doing at the moment is like getting up and having a cold shower, pretending that I'm jumping in the ocean, but actually I'm just standing <laughs> in my shower and then putting clothes on that I would ordinarily put on to leave the house. I like the two things that I'm doing to try and like give myself some kind of separation from being in bed to now I'm sitting on my bed, but I'm in outside of the house clothes and I've had my cold shower where I like kind of theoretically jumped in the ocean and so even though I'm returning to the same space I'm like in a body that's ready to go outside is kind of the way that I'm separating my sleeping from my work and then also my housemates are here as well and so we have yeah sort of been trying our best to structure the day's around we'll do yoga together and then we'll cook our meals together and then we'll go off into our own rooms when we have to sit down and do our work. And then the main thing that I'm working on at the moment is to Cloudy River, the show that I made with my friend Charlie. We are now working on like turning that into a much bigger show. And so we have a two-hour phone call every afternoon. That's when we're on and doing work, yeah. It sounds like routine is your friend here. Absolutely. When I, I mean, when I first got back from the, what was the beginning of my tour, when it got cancelled, I just felt so aimless for the first week. Yeah, kind of everything around me, all these plans that I had that were very solid and concrete were just crumbling. Yeah, just like dissolved overnight, basically. And so for the first week was just kind of like, gosh, what am, like, what am I going to do with my months now like it's not just yeah. you know a few weeks that I have off it's like the, the rest of the year is now very up in the air and yeah and so I guess like I just had to decide how I'm going to make best use of this time and then implement structures to make each day feel like it had solid borders and having those borders having those boundaries around your your day yeah. What does that give you as far as your sense of control? Everything, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm trying to make shapes in an otherwise shapeless world. And those borders or blocks, like whatever we want to call them, building blocks, like I'm making a structure around me that is keeping my body intact, basically. Uh, I'm so grateful I'm I'm talking to you today because I I did think of you yesterday. I mean, I still... Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm i a lot better than I was. When we first met, I was still pretty sick. I'm a lot better than I was, but the things that frighten me still frighten me. I just deal with them better than I used to. And like I was telling you earlier, the, the things that 
trigger the thoughts and the rumination and the obsessive compulsive stuff. That's all still there. It doesn't go away. Mm. I just, I'm better at dealing with it. And yesterday I, I really, really struggled because I read an article that there was a heat wave in Antarctica that got to 21 degrees, which is mm. probably 20 more degrees than it probably should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought of you straight away because you're the only person I know that has slept on a glacier in Antarctica. And I, I was hoping you might be able to tell me once again. You said it sounded incredible, right? Yeah, it did. And, and I had this idea that when I slept on the continent in Antarctica, like I was sleeping in a sleeping bag, no tent, just a waterproof sleeping bag in the snow. And so I have this obsession with glacial ice that I've now sort of unpacked this experience in the like two years that I spent in Oxford, first studying and then as a research assistant. And I was researching Antarctic literature. So pretty much anything that's ever been written about Antarctica in fiction, I was reading it. And I think what was so profound, even though I didn't know it at the time, about listening to glacial ice carving, which is where the front end of the glacier that empties out into the sea breaks off and dissolves into the sea. Like now I understand why that experience was so profound because in the glacial ice, as you dig down, uh, Robert McFarlane calls it the blue of time. So you have all of these tiny, tiny pockets of air that tell the stories of distant worlds of millennia ago, hundreds of thousands of years. You have like these tiny pockets of air that give clues as to what the world looks like then. And so that I imagine it as a glacier, as a kind of library of stories, of world stories that are like so ancient and so old. And that when the glaciers carve, you know, we hear this like immense thunder sound, this like cracking and breaking off and then it dissolves. And all of these stories that were embedded in the ice go down into the ocean and they melt and they become part of this like swirling pool of world stories. And so I find that incredibly beautiful, but also terrifying. You know, it's like beauty and loss are always wrapped up together. And like, yes, glacial carving is a natural phenomenon. It has always existed, but it is happening so much faster than it ever has before. The carving now is unprecedented. Like you said, the um, heat wave in Antarctica, like these are unprecedented events. And I feel like glacial carving is like one of the most visceral experiences we have of climate change affecting us now in that it's like this feeling of history happening all at once where the ice takes hundreds of thousands of years to move down the side of a mountain and then in two minutes it's broken off and it's like part of something bigger. And so I think, I mean, that was like really the story. I, I know that I was talking about Below Deck being about um, sexual violence, but I think it's really about this, like, you know, I'm upset in that and partly set in Antarctica because I'm obsessed with this idea of glacial ice and of history happening all at once. Uh, look, just to hear you talk about it like that, you know, because it is, as you said, it is the most immediate and most profound and most visible immediate version of the impact of the climate warming up, heating up, I should say. But it's so very far away. 
you know. Mm. It's so very far away and hard to even imagine. People are aware that glaciers exist, you know, but well, I should say it's C-A-L-V-I-N-G is what we're talking about. It's it's not C-A-R-V-I. It's a weird, but it's basically where you've seen the photos of it. It's where the chunk of ice. And these, bear in mind, these are 800-metre high cliffs, all right? These are not mm. small you know, they're just vast edges of a continent peeling off into the ocean. And that amount of energy shifting and that amount of history unleashing, and it's extraordinary to understand and, and just bear the sadness of it mm. is the thing that I kind of grapple with. But you just describing it just then, for me, personalized it even more. And it's not a photo at a National Geographic documentary or on someone's Instagram. It's like, no, 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 I heard it as I slept. Yeah. And that, oh, it's a real thing and it actually happens and it's happening faster and faster. But the hope that I have in all of this, whatever's going on, Sophie, is that this moment where global capitalism has paused for the globally for the first time since it was created, every minute that goes by when it's not business as usual allows the very systems that we have come to rely upon to be brought into question. Like, how much of that did I really need? Like, mm. did I really, like right now, like G's going to school upstairs and I, I listen to her doing her lessons and I'm like, yeah, this is a way you can educate people. Is it the best way? I don't know, but it is our way. And the way we're doing our groceries, the way I'm talking to my neighbours at the moment, like every second that goes by when the systems that we've come to just accept as a part of our life are not being used allows us to question about how much of that do we want again or how differently can we have it when we have it back and what else could we do instead? And this moment, these weeks and months that we now see in front of us, I personally feel is an opportunity for us to reshape and this is our moment, I feel. This is our moment. Absolutely. This is our moment to reimagine our place in the world. Yeah. You know, to like look beyond human history and to start living on planet time and realize that we are like part of a huge system that we need to live in balance with and that we cannot like continue to keep abusing it. Yeah. Yeah. I've got tears in my eyes talking to you about this right now. I don't know if you can see that over the Skype camera, but the possibility that it's available to humanity right now is the thing. And I'm grateful that my brain has now changed to the point where I see the possibility versus the horror option. Yeah. You know, don't get me wrong. The catastrophizing is still there, but that's, that's now 49% and the possibilities are 51. <laughs> when I'm sick, it tips the other way and it's a, that's a very slippery slope on the other side. You need some, yeah. some pretty serious grappling hooks to pull me back from there. And I certainly don't want to get there again. Look, so I know you've, you've got your structure in your day. I don't want to bust into it any further, but I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know we are probably only a few short kilometers apart physically right now, but I feel very grateful that in this new way of, you know, connecting with another person through a camera, through a microphone, through an NBN, that we've been able to reconnect like this and and have this conversation. And I I couldn't be more grateful for your time today, Sophie. I'm so, so, so grateful for you and for your time. Yeah, you're the best. Have a cracking afternoon. Enjoy yoga. Thank you. (laughs) That was Sophie Hardcastle. You can find Sophie online. Uh, She is at sophiehardcastle.com. You can also find her on Instagram. She's at Sophie underscore Hardcastle. Sophie underscore Hardcastle. The new book uh, is called Below Deck. 
uh, I can't recommend it, or her memoir, Running Like China. I can't recommend them quite enough. Running Like China is a really good book. It actually inspired me a bit uh, when I wrote my book. I'm super grateful that powerful voices like Sophie's exist in this world, and because that she's in this world, it makes me happy to be in this world and to bring a, a, a teenage young woman into this world. Yeah, makes me happy to be in it. Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make this show. Rachel Barrett, Andy Marr, Hayley Van Spagna, uh, you. Thank you very much for being a part of this show. I hope you have a good week, whatever you're doing. Um, let me know how you go, turning off your notifications, unsubscribing from all those emails. You decide when you do things, not an algorithm, not a coder in Silicon Valley, you. <laughs> Wild concept, isn't it? Take control. Take control. I'll see you Friday uh, when I'll be back. I want to see, I mean, talk to you. You know what I mean. All right. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.